0: That's uh, running concurrently, so I'm glad about that. And before we begin, just one advertisement: there's still space left for the Westminster Seminary Conference this weekend on Friday and Saturday. Uh, it's about it's titled "From Faith to Faith: The Power of the Gospel for the Christian Life." Doctor Horton's speaking, Doctor Godfrey speaking, President Kim is speaking. Uh, Dr. Bittner and Dr. Troxell. Um, it's a really wonderful opportunity, Friday night and Saturday, up until just a little bit after lunch. And if any of you are interested, you can just go to the seminary's website, and you can register there or just uh, come and talk to me after. But there are still seats available. It will be live-streamed as well, but if you can come, we'd love to have you there in person. So I want to just kind of pick back up with where, where we're at going through the book, The Unfolding Word, and we're in First and Second Samuel now. Um, and we're, just by way of reminder, the whole point of what we're doing here is to try to trace the story that we recognize from the beginning to the end of Scripture, that it's one story told with multiple narratives all kind of leading into the greater or the grand narrative. And in particular, we're looking for and tracing one seed. In the very first couple chapters of Genesis, we noted that God had created everything good, uh, and he created um, Adam and Eve in order to be able to walk with him and to live upright lives with him. And then in their sin, it devastated uh, the rest of humanity. But in, in that moment, the Lord promised that a seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent and that he would basically restore them and give them life. It was in seed form. Uh, the promise was in seed form about a seed. And so we see that expanded throughout Scripture, we went through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Judges. And the book of Judges was the last one that we looked at together. And we noted that the last verse in Judges says that there was no king in Israel. And it just kind of leaves it hanging there. And First Samuel is going to pick that up, and we're going to see the first king in Israel. And we also wanted to notice that if we looked throughout all of... Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, like we're looking for someone who's going to be that seed. And we find that it's not Seth, it's not Cain, it's not Abel, it's not Abraham, it's not Isaac, it's not Jacob, it's not any of these people. And ultimately, we just keep looking for the one who is to come. And even as we looked at the Mosaic economy, we were looking for the people of God to be obedient to the Lord. You remember that they made a covenant with the Lord. A stand-up covenant where they raised their hands basically and said, all this we will do. And then we recognize that they failed to do that even in the making of the covenant itself. They were making a golden calf while the covenant was being cut. Like They were unfaithful as a people. So Adam wasn't faithful. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob weren't the right person. The people of God collectively failed. And we're going to see more about that as we get into the prophets as well. But we're, one of the big things that we want to notice that happens in the book of Judges and then it starts to get expanded more is that we're no longer looking for the people to do this collectively, the people to obey him uh, in order to be able to stay in the land. We're looking for a person, a particular person. And then it's interesting in First and Second Samuel then we're basically tracing people. And from here on out, so, you know, Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, and then ultimately it's getting to Jesus, the one person ultimately who's going to fulfill all of these things, all the types, all the shadows, uh, redeem everything that Adam ruined is going to be in Christ. And so instead of thinking that people are going to be able to do this collectively, the Lord had already said that they failed at this, that they had broken the covenant that he had made with them Um, at Sinai but there's still a promise that was made that's undergirding that the one that was made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and so we're still looking for the promised one and so the the main point I just want to make is that instead of looking for the people collectively to do all of this we're looking for a person who's going to obey the Lord perfectly he's going to obey the Lord perpetually he's going to obey the Lord with all of his heart soul mind and strength and as goes the king so goes the people if the king does well, things go well in the kingdom. If the king doesn't do well, things don't go well for the kingdom, just like it did with the judges. Does that make sense? Okay, does anybody have any questions about that? Because okay. then we recognize that at the end of Judges, there was that downward spiral. We, we recognize that there was disbelief, there was disobedience, there was rebellion, and then the Lord rescued them over and over and over. We saw that cycle. But it seemed to get worse and worse and worse as the judges went on. And then the last verse again, Judges one twenty five says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? That should tell us something about what's going on. That's an echo, actually, of what we, what we recalled in Genesis, is that there's two groups of people. When the seed was promised, right? there's going to be a war. Between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent, they're going to do whatever is right in their own eyes. And the seed of the woman are going to be those people who call out on the name of the Lord. And so we see that at the end of Judges, it's basically a judgment, right? That everyone's doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Which is the same thing that happened in Genesis. It happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened before the flood. It happened at the Tower of Babel. Like It happened in Exodus. Like over and over you hear that refrain a king to judge us like all the nations again that seems like eh, well, what's a big deal Israel has not had a king per se not a human king up to this point in their history Yahweh has been their king and now they're asking for a king as they recognize Samuel who's been a good and faithful leader a good judge a good prophet a good priest not a king they want a king And so they ask for one. It's going to be massively significant because the promised Messiah is going to be king. He's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. So who is this king that we're looking for and who is this king that's promised? And Samuel initially took the request as a personal offense and a referendum on his own ministry. He thought they must be dissatisfied with me and how I've done if they're asking for this king. He kind of understood what they were asking for. But the Lord made it really clear to him that they weren't rejecting Samuel, that they're rejecting the Lord. And the Lord says this in first Samuel eight seven. Turn there if you would. So this isn't us reading into the texts. 1 Samuel 8, 7, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's heavy. Here's the one who had brought them out of Egypt. He'd given them all the promises. He'd brought them into the promised land. He'd delivered them from their enemies all around them, and they're rejecting him. He feels like, Samuel feels like it's him that they're rejecting. But the Lord says, no, it's actually me that they're rejecting. They don't want me as their king anymore. And so then sometimes people have a lot of questions. Well, what's wrong with having a king and all of these things? The request for a king in and of itself is not wrong or improper as a matter of fact the Lord had told Israel that he would provide a king for them if they wished in Deuteronomy 17 you know he said look if you want one I'll give you one in and of itself having a king isn't wrong the question is not whether they would have a ruler or have a king but what type of king is he going to be and so this part is the problem like all the nations if they would have just said, appoint for us a king, great. Appoint for us a king after your own heart. Appoint for us a king who will seek to do righteousness. Appoint for us a king who will seek to do justice. Appoint for us a king who will obey and seek to implement your law. But their prayer is, like all the nations. What they're really saying is, we don't want Yahweh to be our king, and we want to be like our pagan neighbors. We like that better, right? Right? It looks more effective, it looks more fun, it looks more attractive, it looks more powerful, you know, whatever the case may be. They want to be like their neighbors, so a lust for power, less lust for glory, control, influence, not necessarily holiness, not necessarily right relations with the Lord. And so this is a really significant moment in Israel's history. And then you see two kings compared. Here's one like all the nations in Saul. And here's one after God's own heart in David. And you see one rejected and one uplifted. It plays out very similar to the request. And they get to see, look, if you want a king just like all the nations, that's what Saul is. If you want a king after my own heart... This is what David is. But we know that David doesn't even do that perfectly, and there's a pointer ultimately to Jesus Christ as well. But they wanted uh, one just like the nations, and so Saul is selected. He's the obvious choice. He was wealthy, he was handsome, he was powerful. He checks all the boxes of what you'd want in a worldly leader, what you'd want and someone charismatic, someone influential, someone who can get the job done. And he doesn't even really want it. If you read the initial chapters, he's anointed king, and he's not all that excited about it. He doesn't even do what Samuel had told him to do uh, at the very beginning. And Saul is not wholly without any good days or good judgments either. And in all fairness uh, to him, if you read through the book, he does do some things well as a king, but the point that I want to bring, about, bring, uh, bring out is, like we talked about at the end of Judges, that as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And we note that this judgment falls upon Saul because he's not a man after God's own heart. He is like the nations. He leads the nation of Israel in the wrong way. Look at First Samuel 13. And note the echoes of the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant. Remember, the Mosaic covenant was was if you obey, things will go well with you. And if you don't obey, then you're going to have curses. Covenant blessings for obedience, covenant curses for disobedience. And so we note that Samuel doesn't ultimately, Saul doesn't ultimately obey the Lord, and Samuel confronts him. First Samuel 13, starting in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Get that? If he would have done this, he would have had it established. But he didn't do it, so it's not. You see this principle. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So you see, he's being punished for disobedience, and it's going to affect the entire nation as well. If he would have obeyed, it would have gone well for the nation. Since he disobeyed, it's not going well for the nation. So there's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Echoes of the Mosaic Covenant here. Why I'm stressing that is because God's going to make a different covenant with David in just a few chapters. But you see this works principle here. Does everyone see the works principle? All right. Look also at First Samuel 15, 26 through 28. Just stressing this point again. First Samuel 15, 26 through 28. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. But there had been a promise, right, that one would be king forever. So it's not him, right? It's not Saul. We'll need another one. I have rejected you from being king over Israel As Samuel turned to go, go, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So it tells us, all right, we're looking for another, a neighbor, someone else. It's not going to be Saul. Saul's not the guy. Saul's not the Messiah. Enter King David or David, not King yet. Right? He had many brothers who all looked more the part. If you wanted to pick someone from the house of Jesse, you probably would have picked one of David's older brothers if you just interviewed them all. They were more like, look oh, at the obvious choice. But here, out of the tribe of Judah, out of the town of Bethlehem, a little shepherd boy, who the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he was anointed as king by Samuel, and it says that he was a man after God's own heart. He was one who loved the Lord and loved his word and delighted in it. Right? He didn't do it perfectly. He recognizes that he's a sinner. Again, the entire old covenant uh, ceremonial and civil law was set up to show you your sin and provide uh, a remedy for it. Either in a peace offering or a sin offering or, or guilt offering or what have you. It was recognizing we're not perfect but we recognize uh, that we can walk according to the Lord's commandments in relative obedience. And David was someone who is a man after his own heart. And one of the first incidents we see of this is the story of David and Goliath. And David didn't have self-confidence in that battle. He was relying, his confidence was on the Lord. He seeks to honor and uh, the honor and glory of God and his name. He seeks the benefit of his people. He seeks justice and righteousness, and he goes forth in the strength of the Lord and in the strength of his name, right? Here's a leader who recognizes, I'm just a servant of the real king. I'm an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. He's the one. It's in his might, in his power, for his glory, for his namesake that I go out into battle, that I'll face this giant, that I'll have confidence that nothing will befall me or nothing evil will become of me. And to highlight the point that we make, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. In those days, often you would have two warriors battle. And however that battle went is how the skirmish went. So it's not necessarily all the Israelites are going to fight all the Philistines. It's all right, let's have David and Goliath fight. And however that goes, that determines the battle. David defeated Goliath. The Israelites won. He's a federal head. He's representing the nation of Israel when he goes and he fights in that sense. And Goliath was the federal head of the Philistines. There is some fighting after that, but not massive fighting of both armies. Think of it too often like as uh, common as this is, like penalty kicks. Right? You just send out at one point, at the end of the game, it's tied, and so player A goes out representing his team, and he kicks. And player B goes out and represents his team. It's not the whole team gets to go and kick, or they just keep playing. He's now representing it. If he, makes the, if he kicks the goal, they win. If he misses, they lose. As goes him, so goes the team. That's what happens here. It's pointing forward to this principle as well. And so as David begins to rule, the nations loves him. He is a good king, and he cares about his people, and he loves them, and they uh, care for him, and they praise him, and that actually causes some conflict with Saul because he's jealous of that kind of affection and that kind of attention that's going towards David, so then there's ongoing conflict, which is a big part of First and Second Samuel, and again, we can't get into all the details, but think of all the points where this whole thing could derail if the Lord wasn't overseeing it all and preserving lives, if he wasn't preserving David's life from Saul and his enemies all the time, this thing would easily derail. If we wouldn't have even had Samuel to begin with. like All these things that we recognize, it's so wonderful to know that Yahweh is in control of everything. The bird that falls from the tree, the hair that falls from our head, the rain that falls from the sky, the flowers that sprout up our salvation, our enemies. It's all in his hands. We can have a lot of control because if we just look at it and say, this is a mess. It was lucky that it worked out. It wasn't lucky that it worked out. It was providential and powerful and planned and purposeful that it worked out. By Yahweh, the King of Kings, who is also our Father who loves us and sent us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? It's meant to Usher us into this story and help us understand more fully who He is and who we are in Him. So turn, if you will, to Second Samuel seven. So in Second Samuel seven we get the Davidic covenant. So we wanted one of the reasons for this class was to make a distinction between covenants and say they're related but not identical. So we had the Abrahamic Covenant, the Covenant of Grace. We had the Mosaic Covenant. We, had, we saw the Noahic Covenant when Dr. Van Drunen was here. And now this is the Davidic Covenant, which is built upon the foundations of the Abrahamic Covenant because you're going to note that this covenant is unilateral, it's unconditional, It's the Lord saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. Not like Moses, not like Adam and Eve in the garden, but more like Abraham. David was saying, look, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord said, look, I've never even asked you to build me a house. I will build you a house, and I will make your kingdom forever. And I will make an heir of yours sit on the throne forever. I will, I will, I will, I will. Promise, promise, promise. Unconditional, gracious. So listen to this. This is, again, one of these big moments. Appoint for us a king like the nations, they said. No, I'm going to appoint a king who's after my own heart. I'll kind of fulfill your request. I'll give you a king, but not like the one for the nations. One after my own heart, which he had promised before that, right? We had said he was going to appoint a priest, and the priest is also going to be a king who's after his own heart who's going to rule forever, so here, 2 Samuel 7. It says, now, now when the king lived in his house, and look at how much the Lord had done for David. So, now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I will dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. (laughs) But the Lord had never told David or Nathan to do that. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel of whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From this time that I appoint the judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? And note a couple things about this. Just I might pick up on this a little bit more next week because we only have a few minutes left. But note the gracious nature of it, that it's unilateral, it's unconditional, it's gracious, it's eternal, it has echoes of the Abrahamic covenant. And notice there is discipline for the one who disobeys the Lord, but not separation. So he's saying, "Look, if you disobey me, I will discipline you like a son." but I'm not going to cast you out like I did with Saul. And so, beloved, there's something to that for us, who are the children of the Lord, that sometimes we wonder, is he going to cast me off? Is he going to throw me away forever? No. The Lord disciplines those whom he... And this is even telling us, right? There's going to be those in the household who don't always obey... And the Lord is going to discipline them because he loves them. But he's not going to take the kingdom from them. Like he did with Saul. This is different. It's based on different promises. It's based on a different mediator, ultimately, as it points forward to Jesus Christ. But it does tell us that we should expect to be disciplined by the one who loves us. What parent wouldn't? Many of you are fathers and mothers, right? You discipline your children not because you dislike them, but because you love them and because you know it's for their good and you know it glorifies God. And so you do it because you love, love them. And so it is that the Lord does this with us. And so we recognize that there is discipline for those who disobey but not destruction. And note that even in the promise to David, it's not that David is going to do this, it's that an heir of David. One of your heirs will sit on my throne. Because we all know, and don't need to rehearse, we don't have time to rehearse David's downfall. David had a massive fall. And the Lord disciplined him, but he didn't take the kingdom from him, did he? One of his heirs is going to sit on the throne. But it's not like Saul. It's different with David. David had a massive downfall. But what was David's response when Nathan confronted him with his sin? He repented and he believed. What do we do? We repent and we believe. This is what David did. It wasn't because of all the things that he did as king. He believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He looked to the Lord. And in his downfall, in his disobedience, when he was confronted with it, he didn't say, no, I haven't done this. He repented and he believed. And that's what we're called on as well. Don't have time to unpack all of this. I will start with it next week, but it all points forward to Jesus in one way or another. That he is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king, he is the judge, he is the savior, he is the son, he is the seed, right? He checks every single box. And all of these people did it imperfectly. He does it perfectly, he does it perpetually, and he does it for us. It's not just that his kingship is for himself, but he makes us kings, and he makes us priests. And I just want to end it with that, End with that, and then I do want to pick up on this more at the beginning of next week. But 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says of us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. It's not just that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king, but he makes us (laughs) prophet, priests, and kings and queens in him. We are part of that new creation. He didn't just do it for us as an example. He did it for us in the sense of union. And he endured the penalty for law-breaking, and he perfectly fulfilled the law. And he makes us to have a prophetic voice, to have priestly service, and to have kingly and queenly reign as part of the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story and for your amazing grace. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin and misery, that you didn't give us the desires of our wicked and sinful hearts, but that you have given us a new heart. And I pray that you would continue the work that you have begun in us, Conform us ever more and more to the image of our glorified and risen Savior Jesus, the one who always loved, the one who always obeyed, the one who delighted in your law, the one who delighted in doing good all the time. We thank you that he endured the penalty for our law breaking, that he lived a life of righteousness in our stead, and that he lives now to intercede for us and even sent his and your Holy Spirit to rule and to reign in us that we could never be separated from your love. May we love and serve in light of that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.